0: You know, as, as we were singing, Come As You Are, and I was thinking, I was just about to ask the kids to come. And, and, and that song is, is why we, we ask the kids to come. We want the kids to be up, be up front, we want the kids to participate. We want this service to not only be for bigger people, we want this worship service to be for littler people too, because we want them to know that, that church is also for them, because the Savior is also for them, just like us. Parents, kids desperately need the same Savior, don't we? And we want them to know that at an early age. I was was blessed as we were as we were singing in worship this morning. That one one of the songs that we sang, it just just um um cry out to the nations or sing. I, I forget even how the words go now, but it sounded very psalmish. It was a very psalmish kind of a song, and it really 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 encouraged me, and. Um, the songs that we sang, they spoke of God's grace, they spoke of God's provision, God's care, that we can come for that, and um, that that fits the psalm this morning, because it's a psalm about trouble, and where do you go in times of trouble? What do you do when trouble comes? I was, I was thinking about that earlier in the week, and I shared with some folks about just some of the um, things that have come up in my life along the way, I remember a time when there's just, Turns out to be some of the pains of growing old caused me to go in for some tests and scans, you know. And so there I was down at the at at the clinic, and then off for an MRI, and and uh, we were away on a trip, and my wife and I. And we got a phone call, and uh, the uh, the um, person on the other end from the from the doctor's office said, no, "I don't want you to worry." Isn't that a, isn't that good to hear from your doctor's office? Now I don't want you to worry, but. Okay, then it starts, and um, it said, that we, we, we saw something on your MRI that we need to check further. We, we, we don't, you don't need to worry, but it could be bone cancer. <laughs> but you don't need to worry. Now, Now the truth of that, that whole story is, yes, you don't need to worry. That's what God says also. But it reminded me of a time as well, times of trouble, things that come upon us, uh, there was no bone cancer. It was just an exercise in faith. The, um, there was another time when we were on our first term in Swaziland. I'd been asked to take a leadership role on our, on our, on our transmitter station team um, not long before our first furlough. We're away. We're across the ocean on our first furlough, visiting back to churches even here in the Washington area. And um, somebody over there, kind of like an Absalom moment, uh, had his own agenda and gathered a bunch of other people against him, or, or rather with him, against me. I, I was the target. In a sense, it was kind of like a, well, you could call it a palace coup, although the transmitter station wasn't much of a palace, but uh, I was the target of it all. And um, it was one of the most hurtful things. Guys that I was there to to help. It was one of the most hurtful things that I'd ever gone through and I didn't know what was my role here anymore. What was my place? Uh, Personal rejection, conflict with others and how that may affect your work or what you understand the work God has given you to do. I remember, again, our mission experience, both before we left to go to Swaziland, while we were on deputation, I remember there being a time when two weeks, we had a place that we could, we could stay and we could rent for three months, and after that, we didn't know where we were going to live. And two, two weeks from now, we didn't know where our family was going to live, and yet God provided. We came back from Africa about a dozen years later, and again, we didn't know where we were going to live. We didn't know where we were going to work. We didn't know how God was going to provide. All we knew was God was leading this way. I remember counseling with a good friend over over on that side of the ocean. And he said, you know, Bob, I never encourage somebody to leave a ministry job before they know what they're going to be doing, before they have something else lined up. And I said, well, I have to give the mission notice because I know we're not supposed to be here. I just don't know what God has or just exactly where God has for us next. It ended up being here and We're really glad about that, but I didn't know that at the time. And uh, where we were going to live, where we were going to stay. And uh, and God, in his um, amusement, after we arrived here in Washington, sent us all the way to Texas to live for just three months before he brought us right back here again. But... um, Things are like that, aren't they? There's relational conflicts in life. There are economic issues, whether it, it, it has to do with the job. And sometimes the relational conflicts come into the job. You, you don't know where you're going to work. You don't know where you're going to live. You don't know how you're going to pay the bills or can we still live here. Health scares. Uh, we have those whether we're young or old. And uh, I em- emphasize the young part. But um, you know that, that's part of it, isn't it? We are mortal. This corruptible must put on incorruption. Then we'll be brought about the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. And hasn't it, that's not my experience yet. And so we're still on the health scares side of it. I haven't even mentioned as a parent the issues that come up with kids, you know, when they're little. And and uh, I remember our firstborn, we didn't know much about parenting yet, and our firstborn uh, uh, falls and fractures his skull, and he's... he's, he's The next thing we know, they're they're wheeling him off to surgery in the middle of the night. And as we said, as we prayed for our son and as we kissed him, we didn't know if we were going to see him again. Seven months old. Later on, they become teenagers. And it gets worse. I longed for the days in the uh, the, um, children's intensive care, you know, where you knew there was safety around them. And then they grow up and they're adults and they're making all these choices on their own without father knows best. (sighs) Job says man is made for trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job had it right, didn't he? Women are made for trouble too. In fact, men know that. Where do you go when trouble comes? That's the question of Psalm 3. I mean, there seems to be no way out when, when what you had hoped for comes crashing down. You know, I have a book on my shelf. It's called Shattered Dreams. I keep several extra copies of that on my shelf in order to have one to give to people now and again because it happens, doesn't it? And this author has a, does a pretty good job of making sense out of what in the world is God doing when life has fallen apart. You ask God to change things, and He does. And yet, now it seems to be worse than ever. Where do you go when trouble comes? Psalm 1, in our journey through the Psalms, Psalm 1 had to do with a, a man of faith, a person of faith. This is what one who has faith in the Lord looks like. This is what he does. Psalm 2 is about the sovereign Lord. That No matter what happens on earth, no matter how the nations rage, God is still in charge. So the, man, the person of faith... And the, the sovereign Lord in whom we have faith. Those come together in Psalm 3. There's references in Psalm 3, I think, back to those first two Psalms. That's why they're first. They set the tone for the book. Psalm 3 is a prayer journal. Psalm 3 is a page out of David's prayer journal, I think, and we, we have a historical notation on the psalm that, that indicates where, what episode, what's going on in David's life when this happens. The backstory is found in, in 2 Samuel, chapters 15 to 17. Don't turn there. Just jot that down for later. 2 Samuel 15 to 17. Uh, it's a, this is a weakened era politically in David's reign. Uh, He has had the Davidic covenant. He's been promised that he and then his son will rule on his throne forever. And yet, there was that sin of David's. When everything was good, everything was well, God had blessed him on every side, and then he went his own way. And he sins against the Lord with Bathsheba in um, chapter 11, chapter 12. And following that scandal... It's a weakened time. God's blessing has not been apparent on David's reign during this period. David doesn't seem to even have control over his own house. His own son's priests, uh, or or, or rather princes, all, but from different mothers, they all seem to be tug-of-war. There seems to be these power plays going on between them. And um, Absalom, one of the sons, kills his brother Amnon, and then he's exiled. Absalom is exiled. David is weak, and he's being manipulated by others. Many feel, perhaps within the royal household, as well as out in the public square, many feel that God's blessing has departed from David, that God is done with David, and so Absalom seems the logical choice Absalom is his son Absalom will carry on that house of David that covenant of David since David seems to have disqualified himself so many have gravitated the opportunists have gravitated to the rising star of Absalom and Absalom has been cultivating a following he's done that very shrewdly and now he's taken some vacation time said dad i going to be away for a few days don't worry I'll be back boy would he He goes away to another place and has himself declared kings and gathers all of Israel around him. And the word reaches David. And remember, David's popularity has been diminished. Absalom's is rising. Many think God is done with David. And they're ready to go on to Absalom, who's who's kind of the new Saul. He's the kind of king the people want. And so, David is in Jerusalem with still some loyal followers, And yet, the masses have migrated to Absalom. Absalom's now returning to Jerusalem. If David stays there with his friends, they're going to be surrounded. They're going to be trapped in the city of David. They're going to be surrounded there, and Absalom can continue to rally the rest of the nation to come, and there'll be no way out, and there'll be many innocents in Jerusalem who would also be slaughtered in that that impending coup. And so David takes the only way out that he has available to him, and that's to evacuate the city. David the conquering king who conquered Jerusalem years ago and made it into his fortress capital is forced in humility to leave the city knowing that Absalom is on his way and Absalom is going to take it. There's no other way. And as he goes out he is mocked and he is ridiculed and many shout against him. One guy in particular is described in those chapters in Samuel but many are against him. And that's the backstory of the psalm. As we go into the psalm, I want to give you there's kind of three major moves or hunks there's, there's, there's trouble, there's, da- there's trust, and there's rescue. Uh, there, there, is, there is the trouble that David is in, there's David's trust in the Lord, there is, is um, David's plea for God to rescue him, and we know that God does. Where do you go when trouble comes? David's in trouble. And in, the, in his example, there's something for us. are several practical asides that I want to um, go through as well. But let's take that first one. Uh, the trouble that David's in, and in the midst of that trouble, don't listen to wrong voices. Let me read Psalm 3, and uh, you'll find us on page 448 if you're using a pew Bible. Go ahead and open it up, follow along with us. I encourage you to do that. Psalm 3, verses 1 and 2. David's trouble. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. There's no salvation for him in God. The reality of his loyalists being greatly outnumbered. There's no way out. The mocking of the many the, as the great David flees his own city. You know the same had been said about Jesus in Matthew. Remember that at the crucifixion? He saved others but he can't even save himself. He says he's the son of God. Well, let's see if God will save him. You know God knows what it is. God knows what it is to be mocked. That's Psalm 2, isn't it? The nations rage. God knows what it is to be mocked, but not only from the perspective seated high upon a throne and lifted up in the heavens. No, God knows what it's like to be mocked in humanity. God knows what it's like in humanity, in his son, when from the perspective of everybody around and even the son's own experience on the cross, it looked like the mockers were right, that God had left him. Do you remember Jesus' words? My God. My God. God, why have you forsaken me? God knows what that's like. So when David prays this, when you feel it, they say, they say there is no salvation for him in God. God knows that. And God would warn us, don't listen to it. Remember in Psalm 1 it said, don't follow in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't listen to what the many are saying. Don't listen to what the ungodly say. And David doesn't, but he, but he rehearses this before the Lord. He lays this out before the Lord. This is what he's hearing, and yet it's not true. It, you see, if it was true that we could be beyond God's mercy, David would be. David has committed adultery. David has not run his own household well. David has, has committed murder of the husband of the woman he committed adultery with. This has had consequences already in the country. If, if, if a person could be beyond God's mercy, certainly we would consider a murderer and adulterer to be there. And yet David is not. David is the one who will say, blessed is the one who the Lord does not count his iniquity, his sin, his transgressions against him because David has experienced God's mercy and God's forgiveness. Never let it be said that someone is beyond God's mercy. Don't say that yourself. You'll say that in two directions. You'll say that in this direction. There are times when you will wonder, could God really forgive me still or again? There are times when you will wonder, I have so blown it this time. I have been so unfaithful. There's no way back to God for me. Maybe that's for others. Maybe it still works for others, but it can't work anymore for me. Sometimes you'll feel like that, and it is not true. That might make sense to the ungodly, those without God, but it's not true. It's not true in our experience. It's not true because of our God. The Lord is a covenant-keeping God who keeps his covenant. He remains faithful even when we are unfaithful because he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his own practice. So don't judge yourself to be on God's mercy and also then never judge somebody else. You know, you look and you see and you say, oh my goodness. Don't judge anyone. There's somebody that you know that you figure, yeah, yeah, I mean, I could invite some people. I could tell some people about my faith, but they're too far gone. Nobody. In fact, God seems to take a special pleasure in reaching down. Remember, remember Levi, the, the tax collector whom Jesus made a disciple the scandal of that, what? You picked him and so many people, you know, know—we're all dressed up and ready for the interviews and God picks him and, and, and Peter and the, the sons of thunder, whoever they were, they were probably part of a gang. And that's what God does. Not many wise, not many noble. God chooses the foolish and the despised things of this world to confound the wise. Don't ever judge yourself or anyone else to be beyond God's mercy. Now, don't misuse that statement. You know, don't judge. Don't, don't judge lest you be judged. No, no, we need to make judgments. We need to make discernments. Absolutely. A, a lot of people want to hide behind that. And yet at the same time, you don't want to misuse mercy. You don't want to misuse mercy. It's like the child that brings, a, brings the dog, the stray dog home. Mom, can we keep him? Well, maybe we can keep him, but there's... You know, there's, there's things we have to be careful about. We need to give care to. You know, if, if we're not careful, if we keep him, the whole house is going to be filled with fleas. That's what that saying, bad company, corrupts good morals, comes from. It's talking about that dog the kid wants to bring home, and it has fleas. And we know about these things. We got a cat that way, and we still have it. <laughs> but we had to take certain actions so that we didn't get fleas. From the stray cat that got brought in mercifully into the house, you see. And so there might be boundaries, and there are for the kitty. There might be things you'll have to put in place for that. There was surgery for the kitty, for instance. So there's things that have to happen, things that have to change in order for mercy to work its way. And yet, and yet, never let it be said that anyone is too far from God's mercy. I need to move on. Look at verses 3 to 6. First we saw God's trouble, and you heard about that in the backstory. Then, And, and, and he expresses it here. And I, I think this is David's prayer journal. I think this is a page out of his journal. The morning after his first night in the wilderness... When he fled from Absalom, when he fled Jerusalem, the first night he wakes up in the morning and he has written out, he's journaling his prayer. So if you, if you do that, well, be encouraged. David did that too, I think. Look at verse 3. Here's David's trust in the Lord. But you, O oh Lord, that changes everything. They say there's no salvation for him in God, but you, but you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory, And you are the lifter of my head. The first thing David does is he remembers God's character. He remembers who God is. Too often we focus on what if. Too often we focus on circumstances. And David focuses on the character of God. You see the difference? He says, but God, he doesn't look at himself. He looks instead at God. He says, but God, you are. This is who you are. You are a shield about me. You are my protector. You are my glory. Why should David be king? Why should David be king anymore? Only because of God's covenant. God is the one who put him there. He was the eighth son of Jesse. He was the red-headed boy that was out watching the sheep because dad thinks certainly one of these other boys is the one that God has to be king. And none of them would do. God chose that one. God chose the little one, the same one who would, who would who would defeat Goliath. God chose him. What right did he have to be king? What right does he have to be king still? Only from God, not from himself. God is not only his shield, but God is his glory. What right do you and I have to be called the sons of God? To be called the children of God? What right do we have? None. None. Unless you mean Jesus. That's what right I have. The only right I have to be an heir of God is Jesus, my Savior, whom God has identified me with, that what he has, I have. What God has given to him, he's also shared with me. He has exalted us only in Christ, not in ourselves, and made us his own kingdom of of priest unto God. Remember God's character. You are our shield. You are our glory. You are the lifter of my head, he says. Well, that's a weird phrase. What does it mean? Well, in Genesis 40, it's used to restore someone to their position. It's also, it's used to, um, in Luke 21, verse 28, it's an it's, it's expression of hope. And Jesus says, when you see these things happening, when you see the trouble coming, then also lift up your heads, because now your redemption, your rescue, draws near. It's an expression of restoration. It's an expression of hope. You, God, are my shield. You will protect me. You, God, are my glory. You're the one that makes me anything. You, God, are the lifter of my head. You're the one who will restore. You're the one who will redeem. You're the one who will rescue. That's who God is. That's God's character. And David is seen it in action. He remembers his character and he remembers his care. He remembers his recent care. Look at verses 4 and 5. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. How did he answer me? When did you cry to the Lord, David? When did you pray, and how did God answer? Here it is, in verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. When David fled Jerusalem, He left behind a a, a loyal friend who had been his counselor because he heard that another wise king's counselor had also stayed behind but was with Absalom. And he knew that he would give Absalom very good counsel. Absalom, the son, wouldn't know what to do. He was new at this. But this wise counselor would tell him and David would be finished because he had all the resources to act on that counsel. And so David's other friend, was, he remained in Jerusalem and acted as if he was loyal to the son now. He, acted, he said, I will serve you as I served your father, so that he could give contradicting counsel. And he painted this picture that appealed to Absalom's pride, pride of how wonderful it was going to be when he did this and he did that. And he, and he painted such a great view of what the future was going to be that Absalom bought it. And he did what he said. He waited instead of going after David right away. Because if they'd gone right away, when David was yet unorganized, and when David's friends were tired, and when they had no place yet to hide, no fortifications prepared, no answer to an attack ready, then it would have been over in a day. And when David goes to sleep that night, he's wondering if he's going to wake up. He's wondering if in the night Absalom and his forces are going to come and wipe them out even as they sleep. He says, I, and yet he slept. Why? Because you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. And he slept. And not only did he slept, he woke up. You see it? I lay down and slept, and I awoke for, because, how did that happen? The Lord sustained me. Lord, you answered my request this last night, and that gives me confidence for what I also have to trust you for. You see, the little victories, the little answers, seemingly little, give you confidence. Somebody asked me, why pray? Why should I pray about that? Well, God's in control and God's probably not worried about this little stuff of mine. Why should I pray about this little stuff? Doesn't God have bigger things? But when God hears you and when God answers in your seemingly little stuff, that reminds you that God is hearing you, God is listening to you, and you should all, all ask him about the bigger stuff. Okay? One of the reasons to pray is so that you will recognize God's answer when it comes. You'll know that he hears you. And that will strengthen you because there are bigger troubles coming. Trust me. Isn't that good news? Aren't you glad you came to hear that part this morning? There are bigger troubles coming. Some of you are going to walk out of here and that's the only thing you're going to remember. It's the frustration of being a pastor. But remember this. I lay down and slept and I awoke because the Lord sustained me. God Heard me. And because he remembers God's character, who God always is, and God's care, what God has just done, because he remembers both of those, he then will not be afraid, verse 6, of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. He knows they're coming. He knows they're out there. He, know the army, he knows the armies will be on their way, and yet he's not afraid because the one who is a shield, the one who is his glory, the one who is the lifter of his head has, has kept him one more night. And that night, by the way, made all the difference in the battle that followed. And David was preserved. David was victorious. And if, if it hadn't turned on that one night and Absalom listening to one man instead of another because the Lord God directed his heart, And confounded him with bad advice. That made all the difference. God had David's back. You can trust the Lord in the midst of your turmoil. Where can I go? You have a loving father. You, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not an orphan. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Not only that we are forgiven in Jesus, but you shall be called the sons, the children of God. Amen. That's the kind of love God has given us. You are not an orphan. You can trust God in your turmoil, whether it's the politics of the day or the politics in your workplace, whether it's the finances you have or the finances you don't, whether it's my health and what's going on, and a you're awaiting some test result from the doctor. My car is making a funny noise. Whatever it is, you can trust the Lord in the midst of your turmoil. Because that's who he is. And you've seen him do it already. And so then, ask, God's, ask for God's help. Ask for God's help. Look at verses 7 and 8. David gets very specific. He's got the big ask coming now, but, but he doesn't mind t- making this big ask, this putting this out there because he knows who God is, his character. He knows what God has done, his care. And so he says, arise, O Lord. Arise, O Lord, save me from, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Arise, O Lord. Were the words used when the presence, you know when when they would take the ark in the battle? The very presence of, of God went into battle with them in that ark of the covenant that the priest would carry into the battlefield? The words the priest said when they picked up the ark and began to march was, Arise, O Lord. Arise, O Lord. It's God's call. It's call for God's swift and intermediate intervention, Alan Ross says. Rise up against those people who have risen up against me, David says. Save me, O my God. The deliverance through the night, the critical hour, has encouraged David in this morning prayer. Save me, O my God. Remember in verse 2, they said there's no salvation for him in God. But he dares to say, save me. Oh God. And God would save him when it didn't seem like it could be done. Even as God saved Jesus after his death. Not from the cross, but after it. He raised him from the dead. By the way, saw the Risen movie? Saw it yesterday? Take somebody to that. It ends with a question about what you believe. It ends with the right questions. It's a good one to go to the movie. Go to an early movie. Go to dinner afterwards and talk about it. That's my suggestion. That's completely on the on an aside. Sorry about that. Let your experience of God's grace lead you to return as often as you need to the well of God's mercy. Return again to that well. Return again for God's grace. You have experienced it in the past. Let that confidence cause you to return. Don't ever listen to the lie that says you're not worthy to ask again. You are are worthy in Jesus to ask again and again and again and again. Return to the well of God's mercy. And then David gets real here. Strike the enemies on the cheek. Break their teeth. And if you are having trouble, that doesn't sound very Christian, does it? What happened to turning the other cheek? He says, let him have it. He could be talking about that nice roundhouse, you know, you, you jab a little, and then you just let him have it. Don't even see it coming. Talk about striking on the, on the cheek and the teeth go flying out the other side. You can see that. You can envision that. You know, The, the men, yeah, that's my kind of God. God, do that. maybe, Maybe it actually means after the battle, taking captive and striking on the cheek in a humiliating way, in a shame of defeat. Not sure exactly what it means, but it's very explicit. And there's a point here in that God does take and should take, and we should take, his enemies seriously. Now don't get confused about who the enemies are. Don't go out of here looking for somebody to strike on the the cheek and breaking their teeth. That's not the point at all. You will have missed it. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power who have teeth you and I can't touch, but God can. You see? There is a real enemy, and that enemy walketh about like a roaring lion, big teeth, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, Firm in the Lord. Lord, break that lion's teeth. God, we need you to go to battle for us. You too have enemies, only God can defeat. But don't give them inroads. Don't give them opportunities. It's kind of like parents with children, okay? There you are in a neighborhood, and somebody moves in next door, and there's all this traffic at all odd hours of the day, especially all through the night. People come in, people go. You figured it out. The guy's selling meth there. We went to visit our niece up, um, up on the Key Peninsula. You probably don't know. There's actually, in the Puget Sound, there's this little bit called the Key Peninsula. I never knew about it before until they moved there. But it's there. We went to visit them there, and she said, yeah, the guy next to us there, we think he probably deals meth. That's a nice neighbor to have. You know, uh, they're, they're, they just had their, their first little little girl. So we, have a, we don't have any grandchildren. We have a grandniece, and we'll take her. And, um, you know, she's not going to be playing over at the neighbors, is she? They won't even let their dog go play at the neighbors, you know? You, you don't give opportunity. You don't take chances. You don't give inroads. You, you, just as you would pro- protect your children from evil around them, so we protect our own souls from the enemy. We don't give opportunity. To that enemy. Realize that that enemy is there, and yet, God, you have to. How do we pray? God, lead me not into temptation and deliver me from the evil one. Because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You are the sovereign God. We don't make it personal against people. We have enemies, but we don't make it personal against people. Whether they're people who seem to be against you or not, that's not the point. Our trust is in the Lord, and he will be the one who will deliver us from whatever enemies surround So we take our needs to him. And that points us to prayer. But the problem is, though this is a prayer journal of, of, of David's, it may be that our prayer journals are a little weaker. And if I could just be, be um, kind of frank here, it's because often we get discouraged in how we pray. We don't know how to pray. I don't know if your experience is like mine, but... Oftentimes, oftentimes when I pray, I find myself praying sort of, well, kind of uh, the same things about the same things. And it's not surprising that we pray the same th- about the same things because there are probably eight general categories of needs that all of us would pray for. If we had a spontaneous prayer meeting right now and you begin to list the different kinds of things you'd pray for, they'd fall into probably eight general categories. Those would include a, um, a, 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 some relational issue with somebody. It would include family. It would include your job. It would include something uh, economics or resources, providing. There are several kinds of categories that all of us pray for. And so it's not unusual to pray about the same things. And we also get into habits and ruts and we pray the same kind of things about those same things. So we keep praying the same things about the same things and we're bored with our own praying. Have you ever had that? Oh, you don't. Don't answer. And you you suspect God probably too is bored with your praying. And you're probably quite certain he's bored with my praying. What do we do? What are we supposed to do? John Piper says this, if I try to pray for people or events without having the word in front of me guiding my prayers, then several negative things happen. One is that I tend to be very repetitive. I tend to be very repetitive. I just pray the same things all the time. Another negative thing is that my mind tends to wander. You ever have that? Well, you're in good company. I saw somebody out there said, no, no, no. Well, I do. I do. My mind, after a little bit, you know, after three hours of diligent prayer, my mind begins to wander for three minutes, which I forget. Yeah, yeah. And Piper hints at a solution there. Whenever I pray without the word open in front of me to guide my praying, and I came across a book, and I ordered a copy of it. It's called Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. Praying the Bible. And after I ordered that book, I started reading it, which is a good thing to do after you order a book. Most of the books pastors order, they just put on the shelf, see. But I started reading this one. And after I started reading it, I ordered a stack more. And I, will, I have some of those for you after the service. If you would like one of these books, you can certainly get your own. You Feel free to order it. But I have a, a, a stack of them here that I'm going to leave up front at the end of the service. And I invite you to just come and take one. I'm not going to sell them to you because we're not going to do that whole turning over the tables thing. I, I learned that lesson from the gospel. So we're not going to sell them. You want to give something for it? Just put a little extra. You know where the offering is found. But if you'd like one of these this morning, there is a limited number of them that you could take one. If you will, if you will take it, if you will read it, if you will use it. So we'll have those at the end of the service. But um, I'd like to close with just, just a, an example of that. I haven't planned this at all, but I'm going to turn back to Psalm 3. And uh, just his model is basically this. As you read, and the Psalms are good for this because most of the Psalms are prayers. Then just go from verse to verse and whatever comes to mind in that verse, pray that way. It might be related directly to the story in the verse and the interpretation and so on. It might not be. But what comes to mind, pray that. And then go on to the next verse. And if nothing comes to mind, go on to the next verse. And just let the word provoke you as you pray. So again, go and bow our heads, turn to Psalm 3, and let's pray. Oh Lord, Father, you know you know that there is trouble. Father, I, I don't think of particular enemy danger that I face right now, but Lord, I know in this church that that's the case. Lord, I know that that takes the place not only of the enemy a personally attacking people but it also takes the place of of apparent foes people that uh, we are in conflict with people that seem to be standing against us and seeking to do us one kind of harm or another whether it's economic whether it's at work whether it's relationally maybe it's just to make themselves feel better lord but still they are then against us and lord we can't change it but you you can Lord, we ask for your help for those that seem to be against us. Father, I would admit that sometimes within me, I wonder how could you forgive me again? Is there really ongoing forgiveness and salvation? Will you continue to save and even bless somebody as unworthy and at times unfaithful as me? And Lord, yet you do. Father, I thank you for that. I thank you that no matter what anyone else would say, that there is salvation for me in my God. I thank you for him. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.